Okay, tonight's Bible reading comes from the book of John, chapter 18, verse 28, to chapter 19, verse 16. And that's on page 1085. And it's Jesus when he comes before Pilate. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have him handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people, the chief priests, handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to him, to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, They shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He said to Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? 
Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away and crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Thanks, Fiona. Good day, everyone. My name is Nathan. We have an epic passage on our hands tonight. So let's pray to our God that he might help us and then get started. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for these words that speak of your son in his last few moments. We ask, Lord, that as we feed on these words tonight together, that you might bless them to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, to this day, they still refer to it as the match of the century. Of course, I'm talking about the 1972 World Chess Championship. That's what we're all thinking, right? Now, if you know me even just a little bit, you will know that I, um, I have a thing for board games and that I like to play them. Actually, all you have to do is come around and check out the shelves in my spare room to know that I'm a board game fan. But if you were to search those shelves high and low, there's one game you wouldn't find collected, a chess set. And it's not because I don't like chess or know how to play it. I, I do like it. I've played it a little bit, but I wouldn't say that I'm into chess, if you know what I mean by that. Because chess is one of those games that you can really be into. <laughs> it's, it's strange. Sometimes it seems the more someone is into chess, the more extraordinary their powers on the chessboard are, the harder it is to have a conversation with them. <laughs> Maybe it's just because they're always thinking about the next move. By all accounts, that was certainly the case with a guy named... Bobby Fischer. Now, as I said, I'm not really into chess, but even I have heard of Bobby Fischer. He's close to one of the most well-known chess players in history. And most of it comes down to what took place in the 1972 World Chess Championship, the match of the century. There are a couple of reasons for it being such a big deal. On the one side of the board, you had Fischer, who was just 29 years old from the US, challenging. On the other side was the defending champion, the Soviet chess grandmaster named Boris Spassky. To say the Soviets were good at chess at that point is just a massive understatement. They were phenomenal. In fact, apparently it was the national sport of the Soviet Union at that time, which sounds a little wacko to me. And by 1972, the Soviet Union had actually racked up 24 consecutive World Chess Championships, which is pretty impressive. 
Spassky himself had actually won the previous four years in a row. He'd been the world champion. And the championship in 1972 actually marked the very first time ever that a Westerner had challenged a Soviet champion. Of course, we also had a little thing called the Cold War going on between the US and the Soviets at that point. That kind of raised the temperature even more in the, the, the days and weeks surrounding uh, the championship. It was a pretty big deal. People with zero interest in chess would literally be stopping and watching the games as they were televised on the street. This is back in the day when we sold televisions in window shop stores. It'd be kind of like, I guess, awkwardly standing in the middle of a Harvey Norman today. <laughs> that wouldn't be weird. Such was the level of interest in these matches, in these, these chess games. They actually televised each one live in Times Square in New York City. Chess games. And I say games because the championship match actually comprised of 24, best of 24 games, which is epic. It went for like over a month. Out of the 21 games these two ended up playing against each other, they drew 11 of them. <laughs> it's like, that sounds boring to me, don't you reckon? Oh, it's another draw. <laughs> In the end, though, it was Bobby Fischer who triumphed, becoming king of the chess world. He actually was the first and remains to this day the only American-born world chess champion, which I was flabbergasted at, actually. As you, can imagine, as you can imagine, when he won, the reaction was pretty intense. For a brief moment in time, they said that Fisher was the most well-known person in the world next to Jesus Christ. All for playing a bunch of games of chess. It's crazy. Underlying Fisher's remarkable victory was, of course, the power struggle between the two world superpowers at the time, now, his win certainly didn't bring an end to the Cold War. That would be ridiculous. But it's impossible to deny his victory, it actually did deal quite a significant blow, a psychological blow, to the idea of Soviet dominance and power. Our passage tonight has a power struggle in it as well. It's also between two superpowers. And in a funny kind of way, it almost resembles a game of chess. If you weren't with us last week, that's a shame because Scott helped us crack into the start of John chapter 18, which really is the very start of the final day of Jesus' life. Like literally before the sun sets, Jesus will be dead. And as dawn breaks in tonight's passage, Jesus has just endured a few bruising hours. He's been arrested at Club Point. He's watched all but his closest disciples just desert him. And then he's undergone a violent interrogation by the Jewish authorities in the middle of the night. Been pretty rough. And unfortunately for Jesus, it only gets rougher. Because tonight's passage is the very last stop before Jesus faces the cross. It's the very last step in the Jewish plot to take him out. But because Rome ruled the land at that time, and only Rome were allowed to execute people, the Jewish leaders actually had to plot in order to get Rome's help. And so in this final climactic episode, the early hours 
of Jesus' final day, he gets dumped at the feet of the highest Roman authority in the land, Pontius Pilate, who was governor of Judea. And they demand Pilate puts Jesus to death. So it's all set for this kind of showdown between Jesus on one side and Pilate on the other. And yet as the passage unfolds, it becomes quite clear that that's not where the conflict really lies. Jesus becomes just a pawn in a political chess match between two first century superpowers. On one side of the board, you've got Pilate being governor of Judea, made him the most powerful man in the region, easily the most powerful man Jesus had ever come face to face with. And Pilate was there actually representing the most powerful person in the whole world. Western world at the very least. Tiberius Caesar, right? Empire of the Roman, um, sorry, emperor of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire at that time was, was nothing to mess around with. They pretty much controlled the entire Western world. They dominated culturally and politically and economically and militarily. Definitely a world superpower at that point. On the other side of the board, facing off against the might of the Roman Empire, were the Jewish leaders. They had brought Jesus face to face with Pilate on behalf of a man named Caiaphas, Caiaphas at that time was the Jewish high priest, which made Caiaphas the most powerful Jewish figure in the entire world. Certainly no match for Rome's military might, and yet still very potently powerful. And the match is taking place in the middle of Rome, uh, in the middle of Jerusalem, which is the centre of Jewish power and authority and influence. You know, so the match is being played in their home advantage. This is all about power, that's what I'm trying to say. As the passage unfolds, just like the 1972 World Chess Championship, here are two superpowers sitting across from each other and they just go back and forth, move by move, each side trying to outplay, trying to outmaneuver the other, both sides intent on using their power to get what they want, which really is what power is all about, right? Getting what you want. And throughout the passage, we see both sides, they're just locked in this power struggle as each of them are desperately trying to gain or at least maintain their power, The first move by the Jewish authorities is to change the charge against Jesus. You see, when when Jesus went before the Jewish courts, they found him guilty of blasphemy for having called himself God. But the Jewish leaders know if they bring that charge to Pilate, Pilate's going to be, you know, what is that to me? I don't care about your little religious squabble. So when they come to Pilate, they actually change the charge and make it from being religious to political. This guy's been calling himself a king and that is a direct threat to Roman rule. See, they change the charge in order to get his attention and it works. Gets Pilate up out of bed in the early hours of the morning and he agrees to take a look at the case. Problem is, as soon as Pilate starts questioning Jesus, right, he he works out that this guy has zero poses zero political threat 
to Rome. You know, Jesus has told him, my, my kingdom is not of this world. And that leaves Pilate in a bit of a bind because he knows the Jewish leaders intent on killing this guy. But for the life of him, he just can't find a law that he's broken. If he goes ahead and executes Jesus anyway, not only does it make a mockery of the Roman judicial system, but it also turns Pilate into a puppet of the Jews. The very people he was supposed to be ruling would now be ruling him in a way. So for him to kill this innocent man would both dishonor Rome, that's not good, and it would also diminish his own power, that's also not good. So Pilate looks at the board and he makes his own move. Verse 39, take a look. He is the one that actually suggests, hey, why don't we follow this Jewish custom of releasing a prisoner during Passover? He's got a great idea of who they might want to release. Why don't we release the king of the Jews, he says to them. It's a cunning move on his part for a a couple of reasons. Firstly, it means that Rome actually officially declares Jesus to be a criminal. Tick. Then it also it kind of proclaims or, or displays how good of a ruler Pilate is, you know, listening to the people. Tick. And it also avoids the dishonor of having to kind of execute someone who is innocent. Tick. Right? Win, win, win. It's brilliant. Not for long, actually. <laughs> Instead of Jesus, they demand some guy called Barabbas to be freed. And unlike Jesus, this guy, Barabbas, actually really does pose a threat to Roman rule. John tells us that, uh, that this guy was, was there on uprising charges. <laughs> it's crazy, right? Because Pilate ends up having to release the guy who is the threat and the man who, who poses no threat at all remains in custody and still Pilate's problem kind of paints himself into a a corner here because, of course, he's the one that suggested this cunning plan in the first place. He's got to follow through. He doesn't give up, though. He changes strategy. He pivots and he tries a different tact. He he goes and he, he orders Jesus to be brutally flogged and humiliated. The crown of thorns, the purple robe, believe it or not, Pilate is doing this in order to try to save Jesus' life. He's banking on the fact that at the end of it all, Jesus will be in such a sorry and pathetic state, right? Beaten to a pulp, made an absolute mockery of. He'll be able to hold Jesus up and the Jewish leaders, will be, they'll be satisfied with that. Jesus can go. He's kind of been through enough. No execution needed. Of course, once again, Pilate has made a gross miscalculation. Jesus endures the torture of the Roman whip and the humiliation of their taunting. And even still, as he is held up there before the crowd, they only bay for his blood all the more loudly. Crucify, crucify. You can imagine that ringing out across the square. And the palace walls shaking at the sound. And Pilate inside also shaking. And yet, remarkably, Pilate still refuses. 
He's a stubborn guy, right? He doesn't want to give in. The power struggle continues. He takes Jesus back in for a second interrogation to no avail until the Jewish leaders then finally play a last devastating move. And it really cuts to the very heart of Pilate's greatest fear. Verse 12, take a look. They say to him this, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Think about that for a second. Suddenly the Jewish leaders are presuming to lecture a Roman governor on what loyalty to Caesar looks like. They're actually aligning themselves with Rome against Pilate. Publicly. It's an amazing move that they make. Actually, it's a checkmate for Pilate. He loses. And John makes it clear, like it's very clear in the account, if you have a look there. As soon as he hears them say that, he then moves to sentence Jesus to death. Even in the final moment when he's right there about to give the order, I'm still struck by just how reluctant Pilate is, even at the very end. He says, shall I crucify your king? In other words, he's saying, are you really, really sure? It's like, of course they're sure, Pilate. (laughs) They've been asking you this whole time. It's kind of like, um, it reminds me of those parent fail moments when a parent's kind of asked a kid to do something and they just don't want to do it. And you can tell straight away the parent doesn't want to actually make them do it or they don't want to punish them for it or whatever. And so, you know, you know the routine, right? I'm going to count to three. And if you haven't done it, by the time I get to three, you're not going to like what happens next. One, two, and then there's always a pause. Two and a half, two and a little bit more, two and three quarters, Two and three quarters, don't make me get there. (laughs) In the end though, Pilate is left to try and regain as much ground as he can by exercising the power only he possessed to crucify Jesus. Despite finding no fault in him, completely innocent, Pilate's desperation to hold on to power leads him to condemn God's son to death just like 29-year-old Bobby Fischer, who struck a blow against the might of uh, the Soviet Union. Here in our passage, the, the Jewish leaders actually make the might of Rome bend to their will. They use their power in order to get what they want, a crucified Messiah. Now I've read and I've heard this passage read so many times before, but what struck me most as I've worked through it this week, as I've read it myself again and again and thought about it, is just how much this passage has to say to us about power, both religious and political power, about the desperation to hold on to power, the insatiable thirst for more power, and the shocking lengths that people will go to when they fear their power is under threat. You see, it's fear that is running all the way through this passage. It's it's fear that drives the Jewish leadership to try to take Jesus out, right? He threatens their religious power. 
He's been going around healing and feeding and teaching and calling out the Jewish leadership and his popularity is only growing. Like just the previous week, he came galloping into Jerusalem to the sound of singing as people were welcoming him in like some messianic king. (laughs) No wonder they felt under threat. And that's precisely why they needed to push for a Roman crucifixion. Have you ever wondered why they were so keen on that? Because a Roman crucifixion may well buy them several days of having Jesus strung up on a cross, hanging there to die in agony, and to, to, to get it done in the middle of Passover, where thousands of Jewish pilgrims would be coming and, and literally walking past this self-proclaimed Messiah, now strung up on a cross to die couldn't think of a more effective way to squash the Jesus movement than that. For Pilate, he's driven by his fear of losing political power. You see, as governor, it was up to him to keep the peace. And actually, the whole reason he was even in Jerusalem in the first place, normally he lived in Caesarea, but during the the Jewish festivals, this is the Passover, the governors would actually come and stay for the weekend or however long in Jerusalem because thousands upon thousands of Jewish pilgrims would be cramming themselves into Jerusalem and it became a powder keg. It became volatile, dangerous. One little spark and there'd be a riot or an uprising or a rebellion and that would be on Pilate's head. So he's in Jerusalem. The very fact that he's there to to, to preside over Jesus' case tells us that he's on high alert, that he is just looking for any little spark that might ignite another rebellion that would spell the end of his power and control. Jesus before Pilate, this event, it's, it's a super specific historical thing. And yet, as we've read through the account, as we've paid attention to this kind of toing and froing, the power struggle that's going on, there's also something tragically familiar about it as well, isn't there? Like it or not, like how often do you find yourself just drawn into the power politics of everyday life? It's far too often for my liking, <laughs> I can tell you that. It happens at home between spouses or between parents and children. Without a doubt, it's there in your workplace, right? As workmates compete with one another, often underhandedly perhaps, as they vie for position and status and advancement. You know, power dynamics are even present in our friendship circles as, as, as people kind of rise and fall in the pecking order of whoever's closest to the center or whoever knows the most. When you think about it, It's a dynamic that I think is at play through every sphere of life, whether it's in the boardroom, uh, whether it's in the classroom, whether it's at uni, whether it's in the playground at school pickup, whether it's at the dinner table when the extended family comes around. And by default, we all want to be powerful because power is the ability to get what you want. It promises you freedom and it offers you control. Which is why in 2020, powerless is just about 
the worst place to find yourself in. You know? Having to be dependent on someone else, that just leaves you vulnerable. Being powerless is about as bad as it gets today. And really, there's nothing new about that. We've actually always struggled with the threat of powerlessness. It's at the very core of humanity, I think. We've always resented being under someone else's control. Ever since the very beginning in the garden, we have been wanting to call our own shots and to have our own power. And so there'll be people who use the sheer force of their personality to gain and maintain power. Aggressive, forceful, intimidating, never taking no for an answer. I'm sure we all know someone who is like that. Or perhaps given just the right circumstance, maybe you're like that sometimes. Then there are others who gain and maintain their power, but they do it behind the scenes, you know? It's like a whispering kind of manipulation. Pulling the strings, but without appearing to. It's less loud and obvious, but it's still effective at getting them what they want. Do you know someone like that? Are you someone like that? Well, maybe for you, when you think about it, you just find yourself always being a captive to fear in this area. Constantly anxious and worried about stuff that might be threatening your power and your control in a particular situation. Fear that ends up perhaps even driving you further than you ever thought you would go, just to hold on to that power. A guy called Tim Keller talks about this very thing in his book, Counterfeit Gods. If you haven't read it yet, it's worth a read. Um, He talks about how we expect that more power will make us feel more secure when the reality is actually the complete opposite. He puts it like this. He says, many people with a great drive for power are very anxious and fearful. Even if fear is not a reason for seeking power, it almost always comes with having it. Because you see, those in power know that they are the object of jealousy and they stand in the crosshairs of their competitors. The higher a person climbs, the greater the possibility of a terrible fall, for there is now so much to lose. What then is the answer? Well, the answer is found in the least likely of places. With the one in our passage who looks the most like a powerless pawn being tossed back and forth by the politics of more powerful people. And of course, that couldn't be further from the truth. On the surface, Jesus may look like just a pawn, but if you've been paying attention and following along in John's gospel as we've worked through it these past few years, you will know that something far more profound is going on right now. And neither Pilate nor the Jewish authorities see it coming. They completely miss the magnitude of this moment. Pilate, the most powerful man in Judea, representing Caesar, one of the most powerful men in the world, and yet Pilate is not even the most powerful man in that room. Not even close. At one point he says to Jesus quite cynically, what is truth? How very postmodern of him. 
Little does he realize that he is literally standing face to face with the way, the truth, and the life. Pilate had never in his life been closer to the truth than in that moment right there, staring him in the face, and yet tragically he couldn't see it. John's gospel has been building to this moment, the coming of Jesus' hour, where the where God the Son, rather than cling to his power in desperation, like the Jewish leaders and like Pilate, rather than clinging to his power and, and trying to use it to get what he wants, instead he uses his power to submit himself to Pilate, to submit himself to the Jewish authorities, to submit himself to the Roman soldiers, and as we'll see next week, to submit himself to death itself. What looks to be the weakest move turns out to be the most powerful move of all. A move that no one saw coming. In chess, it's known as a gambit. Forfeiting a piece, your own piece, in order to gain a greater advantage. The most devastating gambits are often those that involve the most valuable pieces. In this case, God is willing to give up the most valuable piece of all, his only beloved son. And what comes at great cost to himself opens up the greatest of advantages for us. The chance to be reconciled with God no matter what you might have done. The free offer of his forgiveness and the certain hope of lasting glory and eternal life. You know, by going to the cross in our place for our sin, Jesus not only secures for us forgiveness, but he actually also radically redefines what it means to be truly powerful. He takes the world's approach to power and he just flips it completely on its head. And he reveals to the world that true power lies not in getting what you want, but in giving what others need. And with his death and resurrection, he actually has met our greatest need, hasn't he? We have it already. And that means when it comes to all of our anxieties and all of our worries about all those threats to our power and our control, you know what? We don't have to fear anymore because we're safe in him and in his love. There is no more secure a place for us to be. And actually, it's only once we've admitted our own powerlessness before an almighty God, only once we've confessed our sin and cast ourselves upon the power of his mercy, it's only then that we'll be secure enough in God's love to then embrace Jesus' radical redefinition of power ourselves, to embrace it in, in the power dynamics of our families, with our parents, and our kids, and our spouses. To embrace it in our workplaces with our colleagues who are now playing a completely different game. And to embrace it in our friendship groups. Using our power and our status and our influence, really whatever we might have at our disposal, not to get what we want, but to love and to serve and to bring about the good of those around us. Even when... It might be costly. I thought of an example this week. 
He's, he's embarrassed that I'm using it. But when I first met my father-in-law 13 years or so ago, he was working in a high-powered, high-paying executive position at BPay. Pretty big deal. He was the CFO and the COO, and he was in the absolute prime of his corporate career. He had gotten to a place where his next step could literally be anywhere doing anything. That was the power that was within his grasp. And yet eight years ago, he decided to go on a different route. He's a man of strong Christian faith. And he, over time, became convinced that Christ was actually calling for more of him than holding down just a high-powered, high-paying job. And so virtually overnight, he more than halved his salary by taking an executive role at Anglicare. And he did it out of a deep desire to follow in Jesus' footsteps, to start using his business and financial powers to give what others need. What a great example. What to our world looks like acts of weakness instead turn out to be the most powerful acts of them all. May we be willing to embrace Jesus' radical redefinition of what it means to be truly powerful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have spent these last few moments together reflecting on such an epic passage. The glory of your son has shone through, Father, who's right there in the middle of this massive political power play and yet he's the most powerful one there. And he is working according to your perfect plan to bring about the most powerful move ever made in history, Lord. How amazing is that? We pray, Father, that as we've gazed upon his glory, as we have seen his radical redefinition of what it means to be truly powerful, Lord, we pray that we ourselves might embrace that new definition, that every sphere of life you might have placed us in, we might see fit to use the power you have given to us in order to help give to those who are in need. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.